The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, March 27th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And it's a great day. Oh, what a fine day. Because we could take a breath. We can collect ourselves. We can slow our roll today. There are no Russia bombshells. There are no healthcare bombshells. There are no bombshell bombshells, right? No Korean missiles? Can we confirm? Confirmed. I have so often in the last few days longed for the space to just luxuriate in the usual wackiness of the news, not the dire DEFCON 5 of events. I wanted news. I've been getting events. And so in the spiel, I will turn my attention to an issue that compels and unsorcels us all this time of year. Those Charles Barkley, Spike Lee, Samuel L. Jackson commercials during the NCAA tournament. And leggings. I think I need to say something about leggings. But first, let's put a final bow on the debacle that was Obamacare reform, the cherry on top of the pus Sunday. Over on CBS, Senator Tom Cotton gave his explanation for the bill's failure. The bill was rushed, you see. Although, perhaps the alternative could be argued. Perhaps what you're supposed to do is rip the Band-Aid off immediately. And under the failed proposal, that procedure would cost $8,400 for a 50-year-old non-smoker on the silver plan. So the thing is, if you rip the Band-Aid slowly, or if you remove the Band-Aid quickly, the metaphor kind of depends on the wound underneath being healed. But if the limb has gone gangrene, the celerity of bandage removal is kind of academic. What I'm saying is, this was a poorly conceived bill, no matter how fast or slow you do it. Then Tom Cotton was asked by John Dickerson, And it inspired me to play a little talk show karaoke. So what you're going to hear is John Dickerson quote the president saying that Obamacare will explode. So that's the death spiral narrative, focusing on the final event of the death spiral, explosion. Though mating eagles also engage in a death spiral. They lock talons and they plummet towards earth. And that does not end an explosion. So you could press back on the whole death spiral is going to end an explosion thing by saying, ah, It could end up in a baby eaglet, but that might be a hard sell. Okay, to John Dickerson's question. Let me get your experience from that town hall that everybody saw. There was a woman who stood up and said uh, that that she would be dead were not for uh, Obamacare. The president has said uh, that he's going to wait for Obamacare to explode and collapse and then and then it will get fixed. How would that go over with that woman at that town hall or the other people? Well, I I think and here was Cotton's answer. Well, I I think the president is simply stating a fact that Obamacare continues to get worse. Premiums continue to go up every year when you get to new open enrollment season. But what he could have said, what I would have said, as I insert myself into the role of Tom Cotton in this round of talk show karaoke, is something like this. Well, John, to be perfectly blunt, if that woman dies, then we won't have to worry about her vote, will we? I mean, if we do repeal Obamacare, as I advocate... And if all the people who say they're going to die without Obamacare wind up dying, well, then we'll be left with a constituent base who'll be much less afraid of losing Obamacare. And if they don't die, I think that hurts their credibility. We've got to stop listening to them. Tactically, it's a win-win once you weed out those who lose their life. Okay, you might not like that answer. Tom Cotton probably would never give that answer. But I got to say, that answer would definitely lock up the Freedom Caucus. On the show today, March Madness, the final four of Spiel, these Barkley Spike and Samuel L. Jackson commercials are certainly a crime, but are they a capital one? 
But first, lock your screens, smash your cell phones, and dip the parts in acid, preferably in a hot tub owned by Steve Bannon. That is the recommendation of my next guest, Adam Alter. Okay, that's probably a little too far. But he is here to diagnose what makes all those screens so irresistible. Adam Alter is the author of Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. He has a simple message. If you have a screen, if you have a cell phone right now, put it down. Wait a minute. That means you won't be able to listen to us. All right. All right. Maybe put it down on the other side of the room and crank the volume up. Okay. Just this once, listen to this interview and then never listen again, except can we agree, Adam, to the gist? Maybe they could listen to I think we can agree. So hello. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I wish to tell people you're an NYU Stern School of Business professor of marketing. Much of the book, which is about the rise of addictive technology, focuses on the word addiction because I think there is a hurdle for people who will say, yes, it's compelling. Yes, I like it. Yes, people are passionate about it. But that falls short of addiction. You say it doesn't. What's your case? Yeah, I think you have to define addiction. And for me, addiction is some activity that you engage in compulsively. You return to it over and over again. It's pleasurable in the short term, but it diminishes your well-being in the long term in at least one way. That could be social, which is often the case for these forms of addiction. It could be financial. A lot of people just spend a ton of money on games, and so they end up not having money for food and other things. It could be physical. It could be, say, you're physical. You're sitting playing a game for ages, and you just can't get off the couch. Or it could be psychological. These experiences make a lot of people feel terrible. You can make the case for addiction. It's also, you see the same pattern of activity in the brain. These forms of addiction, these behavioral addictions, treat the same psychological ills that substances do. So it's about treating loneliness and treating depression and anxiety. And so it doesn't actually matter if it's a behavior or if it's a substance, you have all of the same hallmarks. Now, I was skeptical about the claims of addiction, and that's only because I've talked to Maria Konnikova over and over about it. And she basically says that ideas like porn addiction is not true. She thinks shopping addiction is not true. She thinks that chemical dependency is true. And yet, blurbing the book is Maria saying, what a good book is it? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think right. maybe maybe the lesson is that there, you said your definition of addiction. There are different definitions, and you talk to big minds in the field who maybe will not use the same exact phrases, but you get to a similar point. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the definition of addiction changes across time. People used to not refer to addiction as encompassing cigarette smoking and nicotine because that was legal. Anything yeah. that was legal was seen as not capable of being a form of addiction, but that's obviously changed. And what's interesting in the last, I'd say, 20 years or so, maybe slightly longer than, than that even, is that the definition has started to encompass behaviors that don't involve in the ingestion of a substance. So no one really argues about gambling addiction anymore. It, it is true that people can be addicted to gambling, and that doesn't involve ingesting a substance. So many of these experiences I'm talking about are very similar to gambling. You have the same uncertainty, the same possibility of a win. You throw a tweet out there. You throw an Instagram post out there. You hope people will like it. You keep checking to see how they're responding. That looks in the brain much like addiction. That's mm -hmm. why it takes more than just a brain response. It takes something like the treatment of some psychological ill. It's sort of a learned way of coping with some psychological ill. For many of us, that ill now is boredom. We are so easily bored and our threshold for boredom is so low that we treat it by getting in an elevator for 10 seconds and taking out our phones. That's almost a universal response. That in itself 
if you can argue that there's a diminishment of well-being there, that is a form of addiction in itself. Why is it not something, an amazing, almost, uh, well, to an ancient would be magical technology that people are extremely passionate about, that they are compelled by, that provides entertainment? I mean, if I describe the thing to someone in the 1950s, they, this magic box with all the answers and all the games, they would say, well, I'd like to watch that a lot, wouldn't they? Absolutely. I mean, I think all of these experiences are wonderful. They all have a side that's wonderful. The fact is that when people started using smartphones, I don't think they could imagine how much time those smartphones would suck up. We were using phones for 18 minutes a day in 2008. We're now using them for three hours a day on average, yeah. with many people going up five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 hours a day. Well, the distraction there is that it's called a phone. I mean, how much of the smartphone function is actually a phone? Exactly. So yeah. it's all about convergence. We're probably using the same. We're probably using fewer than 18 minutes on phone calls, actually, now that we have all these other ways of communicating. Totally agree. But probably three, four, five, six hours a day in front of screens. So when you're in front of a screen, you're not in front of other people. You're not exercising mm -hmm. a lot of the time. You're not engaging with nature. There are a lot of other really good things we could do with our small slivers of free time that we're not doing because we're so engaged with screens. How much of it, though, is that we are overworked and if our work moves to the screen, it just becomes the symbol of work? I mean, if there was a chance, a, an opportunity to bring the factory home with you, we might hate that machine too. The yeah. Loom, you know, the home loom. No, I mean, I think people say, why is this different from pinball machines and why is it different from everything else that we've vilified over time? I think one of the big differences is this goes with you everywhere. The pinball machine stayed at the arcade, TVs stay in the home. These phones are with you all the time. And that means that they are great vehicles for delivering addictive content. That's why gaming has changed so much. Yeah. So we used to think of gaming as this thing that teenage boys did in the in the basement. It's now actually the biggest demographic is middle-aged women, and they're playing games on their smartphones, sometimes for five minutes here, 10 minutes there, but it becomes a crutch for them too. And they start doing that when they should be having conversations. Yeah. And so that's a big part of what's changed. You go inside a center where they try to cure video game addiction. Yeah. I understand the appeal. Your kid's addicted to video games. But why is a video game specific cure better than, say, just thinking of it as any other kind of addiction and using behavioral therapy or whatever good stuff works with any other kind of addiction? Well, I think you can. You can use it with any kind of addiction. The difference here is that these video games are just perfect vehicles for delivering addictive content. They are just so well engineered. One thing I, I discovered that I thought was really interesting was that a lot of the companies that release these games will go through this iterative evolutionary process where they'll release different versions of the game to different people. They'll measure how long they play and they'll pick only the best version. Then they'll do that all over again with three subversions of that best version. And they keep going through that process. There'll be like a second, third, fourth, fifth generation. So what you're left with 10 generations later is this weaponized, ultra-addictive version of the game. And so all these guys, they were all guys at these centers, were teens, sometimes late adolescents, who were completely incapable of stopping. They yeah. played games for days, sometimes for five weeks in a row without moving from their seats. So why is, first of all, is there an ethical component to that? Should the designers not be doing that or aren't they just creating the most compelling game? Yeah, I mean, you could say the cigarette tobacco companies are creating the most compelling product. I think, yes, that's one of the big messages in this book, that we aren't yet at the point where the norms dictate that these producers of tech should be considering what they're doing the same way as tobacco producers are forced to consider it. But I think legislation or a Hippocratic oath even that says to these tech producers, yeah. if you're producing tech that you know billions of people will consume, you should probably be considering the downsides. And I just don't think tech producers are doing that. 
It seems, though, that with video games, the downside is not something pernicious like lung cancer or the possibility of losing your money. The downside is they're just so good. So built into it, the fatal flaw is not penury or lung cancer. The fatal flaw is a really interesting game. So, I mean, what's the cure to make their game less good? You're an inventor. Some, someone invents Halo. It's a great game. It gives people a lot of joy. And now we found a way to connect with other people. That seems great. Okay, it might be so fun that you don't stop. I, you know, that just seem, seems to me it's like the downside is you've created an unbelievably compelling entertainment. Sorry about that. To- I totally agree. Look, I think this is, this is an empirical question. If you create Halo and most people get only great joy from the game, they love it. They yeah. share it with their friends. It connects them to people. I'm fine with that. It just so happens that, say, World of Warcraft, there have been 100 million users yeah. or players, yeah. if you want to call them players instead, and half of them have developed addictions according to a lot of the research. Now, that to me is at a point where there should either be a warning or we should try to pay more attention to what it is about this experience that's so hard to stop playing. That to me is different from Halo and Myst and games of the 90s and early 2000s because, yes, some people play them for hours on end, but I would say... The, the net effect of them was largely positive. And it starts to become blurry. Whether the net effect is positive or negative is, is unclear with some experience. Economists even pick up the World of Warcraft or Halo effect in the economy. Right, exactly. They, they, they even say, you know, when Trump talks about men not in the workplace and a certain percentage of men who've dropped out, there are economic studies that show video games are contributing to that. Yeah. It's and crazy. so then it's hard to argue that there is no negative sure. sort of macro effect from these games. Is there uh, these people would have an addiction anyway? And so maybe a video game is better than the bottle. Well, there's there a an- really interesting piece in The Times recently about uh, there's, there's been this reduction in the rate of, of drug addiction among teens because they've started to become addicted to smartphones and the, the experiences they have on their smartphones. When I started writing this book, I didn't ever imagine that it might be a positive substitute for the kinds of really pernicious addictions you see. Wow. So that to me is a really interesting counterargument. Smartphone is methadone. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's not great, but you can wean you off the hard stuff. At the same time, it shows you just how potent smartphones are yeah. if they are an alternative. You get into bingeable TV. Again, why isn't this just good, compelling TV? And we've always have have cliffhangers. What's the difference? Well, you just have to ask people, right? I mean, it's subjective. If people said to you, I only feel great about my TV watching experiences, it would be one thing. 65% of adults say, I wish I didn't watch so much. And when I sit down in front of Netflix, post-play pushes me onto the next episode so regularly and so predictably that I end up losing hours. I just wish it were different. So the question is, could we make things enjoyable the way they used to be? Maybe one episode a week. We don't need everything to be bingeable and 17 episodes in a row, but that's how people are consuming now. And I think if you took away post-play, for example, you made it easier for people to say, here is my stopping rule. At the end of the episode, I'm done. That would be good. Or give the option. And I don't even know why it would be necessarily against Netflix's interest. In fact, all they want is your subscription fee. So if someone's binging all the shows, they're taking a lot of bandwidth and they're going through your content. Right. They're going through Netflix's content. So a stop, if someone says, I wish I could stop, and they have a hard stop that they program in, that would be a good idea. I think. Yeah, possibly. Or give them the option. I think that's fine. I think where people get squeamish when we start saying things like, the government should intervene here and, and mandate that the companies shouldn't be able to make addictive products. And yeah. I think, understandably, we don't like that sort of nanny state idea. Right. Sometimes, though, the, the negative effects, the harms are so great that I think we need to start considering other options like perhaps legislation. Right. So one of the things that they could also do is what the creators of Lost did, just make it worse. 
So you don't want to watch it. Or maybe, you know, I, I'm really into the Americans. Maybe, you know, if it's really clear how they're going to get out of this one scrape, I wouldn't have to watch the next episode. Yeah, no more cliffhangers. But I do have to say, I don't have an addictive personality, but I do think I'm a sympathetic guy. So I've never been, say, addicted to alcohol, but I read the literature and I understand how it is a chemical dependency. And I definitely understand it with gambling. I mean, I've gambled and I've always been able to stop, but I could see it. It's not that I can't see that this is happening, but I personally come back more to the idea of personal responsibility, which I know is kind of an antiquated idea. <laughs> um, like with the World of Warcraft, guys, if I had a young cousin who was into this, you know, I probably wouldn't look at him in the same way as my young cousin with a, who had an opioid addiction. Right. But maybe I should? I think so. I, I, I think if an experience is designed to be addictive, you're playing the 100th iteration of World of Warcraft, which was weaponized. It's basically the most addictive components of the game mashed together. That is really hard to resist. If we know 50% of people who play the game can't stop, that's yeah. something to pay attention so to. So what are the addictive elements of World of Warcraft? What do they do? The biggest thing about World of Warcraft, according to the literature, is that you have people who play in guilds. So mm -hmm. they play together with other people, often from around the world. And what that ends up meaning is that you sort of feel like you're in battle. This is war. And you go into battle with these other people. You're playing these missions. And if they're awake and you're trying to sleep, you need to be awake as well. It's Band of Brothers. And... So the only way to, to, to exist in this world and to fully buy into it is to basically sleep a hell of a lot less, which is what a lot of people are doing, and to play a lot of the time. And so it ends up being this social responsibility that people feel to a large extent. That's a big part of it. It seems maybe a little different from, say, cell phone addiction or not being able to not check your emails in that, like, if you feel compelled to check your emails when you're not checking emails and walking around, you don't say to yourself, you know, regular life pales in comparison to email checking. But right. maybe the World of Warcraft guy does. And just like doing the regular things can't uh, hold a candle to this immersive, amazing, mystical, magical experience. Well, I think virtual reality is the big next thing. If you talk to oh, experts, God. yeah, you talk to yeah. experts in the, in the field and they say within two to five years, we're all going to have our own personal devices. Now, there's evidence that if you and I are sitting across from each other and there's a cell phone upside down on the table, it diminishes the connection we form because it basically takes you out of the here and now just for its existence. Mm. Now, imagine if you replace the cell phone with our virtual reality goggles we could either exist in the complex, imperfect real world, or at any moment we could go to this perfect virtual world. I think it's going to be really hard for people to resist that. But in 1950, same scenario, we're 14 years old and it's a comic book there. Just mm -hmm. a compelling thing. Or, or in 1900, you know, a, a penny dreadful novel. It's different? Yeah, totally different. I think, for one thing, those things were finite. Yeah. These these virtual worlds, there is no stopping right. rule. The stopping rule right. is a really big component yeah. here, actually. That yeah, yeah, yeah. So if there's a comic book there, I don't have to read it now. It still has 18 no. pages. And know? it stops you eventually. You get to the end of it. There is no end to these virtual worlds. There's no end to Twitter feeds, Instagram feeds, Snapchat, and so on. They are all bottomless, and they're designed that way because they don't want you to be stopped. Like a casino doesn't want you to stop, so you don't know what time it is. There are no clocks. There's no daylight. You have no idea what time it is. Yeah. I remember the first time I ever went on the internet, uh, there was like, it wasn't Wikipedia, it was some whatever reference pages. I'm like, okay, I've been on the internet. I saw what was on the internet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there were three pages. So. Yeah, I've read Twitter. <laughs> it was good. Twitter was good. <laughs> Adam Alter is the author of Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Hope that was compelling. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Hi, 
Hi, my name is Mike Pesca, and I host The Gist. You know that because you're listening to The Gist. I think you should try podcasts. And I'm saying this as part of the hashtag TryPod campaign. What are the reasons I think you should try podcasts? Well, for one, during these 45 seconds or so that I'm talking, you will hear content and argumentation as opposed to emptiness or perhaps something pitched at a volume you cannot understand. That's the thing with podcasts. There is not one yet that exists only on a frequency for dogs, but if you could get enough people to try podcasting, maybe that's possible. There are so many good arguments for you to try podcasting. Like if you don't, you have your earbuds in your ear right now and you have just pressed an app and you don't understand what's going on. Maybe you want it to be Flappy Birds, but it's not. It's this thing. This is podcasting. Try it. Really what the Tripod campaign is, is to get a curious stranger or a friend and grab their phone from them and really just sign them up for a podcast and then they're on podcast. So it's, it's an evangelical movement. And once you do it, share your story with the hashtag Tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D on Twitter. We could all understand how you got someone to listen to podcasts. And if that person is a schnauzer, all for the better. And now the spiel. So like I said, I'm just enjoying my time walking around, stopping to smell the news posies, engaging in mindfulness without all the ultimatums and incidental conversations. And this brings me to leggings. I think I got to talk about leggings. So a couple 10 or 11-year-old girls were not allowed on a United Airlines flight because they were wearing leggings. And from the waist on down, only leggings, it would seem. No flowing dress shirt or sweater to wrap up the upper part of the leggings. I do not understand the United Airlines employee who took it upon herself to be Sister Maria Annunciata at the parochial school dance. And of course, you know, a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old, that make her feel embarrassed about her leg apparel. So in the specific, it does seem like the church lady was holding forth at gate 12. But in the general, with leggings, now don't get me wrong, I like leggings. They work for me. If they work for you, they work for me. But you realize when you wear them as pure pants, not as part of a bigger ensemble, but as walking around the street pants, you realize that everyone can see the exact size and shape of your butt, right? You realize that. I do assume that everyone knows this, and I assume they don't care. I assume they're proud. They're, they're owning the ass parade that is going down. But maybe people don't realize this. I mean, the butt is in the back. In fact, synonym for butt, the behind. So maybe, you know, your butt is out there, back there. You've heard about it. Like, you've read about Egypt, but never been to the pyramids. That's how you know about it. So I'm just saying, and again, leggings, they're great by me. They're totally great. But you are saying, here's my butt. Deal with it. Actually, given the shape and lift provided by modern textiles, what you're saying is, here's the idealized version of my butt. Deal with it. But the onus, I said onus, is on us. I said on us. Different people... Once you put your butt out there, different people will deal with your butt in different ways. Perhaps with suspicion, perhaps jealousy, perhaps excitedly. Perhaps they'll be mesmerized. Perhaps they'll be drawn to it as by a gravitational force, perhaps repelled, perhaps ashamed, and indeed perhaps offended. And by the way, why are leggings called leggings? Uh, They cover the legs, Mike. Yeah, I know. But you think that of all the things that you wear on your legs, that the word leggings would have been gobbled up by a more common item, like pants or slacks or trousers or hosiery. 
It's like the garment leggings. They're sitting in the fifth spot of the garment name draft. And you know, they're hoping to get like tights. I mean, tights, they're tight. We could be tights. We're happy if we get tights. But then leggings falls to them at number five and they're going nuts. They don't even have to trade up to jeans, which got its pick after it traded in dungarees. And leggings all like, wow, I can't believe my luck. This name will make us. Although when you think about it, maybe the name convinced people that leggings are more common and socially acceptable than the leggings people ever intended. Maybe if leggings were called elastic lower limb huggers, we'd demure at the prospect of donning them for a night out on the town or to church or the opera, really whilst patronizing any of the lively arts. There is no upper torso equivalent of leggings. There are no armings. The closest I could think of is a bodice. And I have to say that if you wear a bodice paired with leggings to the airport, you will get barred from not just United Flights, but really any airline this side of Virgin. Because that carrier is a damn party in the sky. Am I right, people? If you do wear that, you can be cast as Malvolio in Twelfth Night, but you might feel a little bit squeezed even if you're not in the middle seat. But the legging story made me think of another piece of cultural effluvium, and that is the ad campaign for Capital One credit cards starring Charles Barkley, Spike Lee, and Samuel L. Jackson. What's the connection to leggings, you ask? Well, Barkley in all these ads is wearing leggings. No, that's not true. By the way, here's a hypothetical. Charles Barkley tries to board a flight. He's wearing a pretty tightly fitted shirt and leggings, just leggings. Change your tune if he gets on board. Okay, you don't? Fine, because it's Charles Barkley. Same situation. Barkley's cousin. Clark Barkley, none of the same celebrity or bonhomie, but the exact same build as Charles Barkley trying to get on a flight wearing form-fitting leggings. Should the gate agent do something? Asking for a concerned Gold Club member. No. The real connection with leggings in these commercials is that the leggings issue only became annoying once it became ubiquitous. First, it was a tweet, and then everyone went crazy on Twitter, or went Twitter on Twitter. But the Capital One commercials, and I know you've seen them a hundred times, aren't actually necessarily terrible. They only seem terrible because you have seen them a hundred times. Let us take the best of these commercials. Here, we see Charles Barkley wearing a hooded sweatshirt backwards. Yo, Charles, the game's about to begin. I'm here. Dude, you do know you put your hoodie on backwards, right? Did I? It's called a snack hoodie. Then he put the bowl of chips in the hoodie and all the fellas partake. You've got that. It's a very fine line between madness and genius. I think he's on to something. Seen that hoodie over here, man. This is whimsically delightful, amiably charming, playfully enchanting. The first 3,000 times you see it. Eventually, it becomes the Batan Snack Death March. And that's one of the better ones of these ads. You know, a couple years ago, because these ads have been going on for decades, I think, since Oregon last qualified for the Final Four. Apparently, the fellas were taking a road trip to the Final Four, which was in Indianapolis, Indiana that year. But they passed a sign that says, Welcome to Annapolis. The Final Four. In the Annapolis. Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Uh-oh. 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 You do know we're in the Maryland, right? Indianapolis is in the Indiana. Two different states, man. Okay. Samuel L. Jackson, smart guy. Spike Lee, director. He's had to navigate the logistics of 100-member crews. They would not notice before the moment they arrive in Maryland's capital that Charles has veered a little off course. 
Okay, I like the fact that the jock and not the actor or the somewhat artsy director is the omega dog of this pack. That I like. But this ad, this particular one, was nonsensical upon the first viewing and excruciating upon the 4,000th. And who the hell buys credit cards on this basis anyway? Oh, yes, Americans. Americans do. But they shouldn't. Let's see. Okay, we got this financial instrument, uh, the careful maintenance of which will determine your credit rating and therefore your mortgage rates, possibly if you're hired. In short, while it can be a convenience, it also represents a time bomb that can seriously curtail your life choices. The difference in fine print between this and a competing financial instrument can spell the difference between the American dream and pure ruin. How will you decide? Because Mace Window told me to do so. Royale with cheese. Give me one of those cards. Surcharge? Fair. Sir Charles. I have made my choice. Those guys are hysterical. APR Schmapr. Buckley made a chip hoodie. And did you see the stakes on a plane one? So great. Can I take out a reverse mortgage based on that ad? So that's what I've been thinking about these last 48 hours. Liberated from the crises of current events, I have fully contemplated Capital One, the official bank and credit card of the Final Four. And leggings, the official garment of indignant Twitter and the official kryptonite of United Airlines. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson. She binge-watched credit card commercials all week, and then she purge-watched. The gist is also produced by Chris Berube. He misses those Viking hordes that were trying to sell credit cards a couple years ago. He was holding out for a credit card endorsed by Visigoths, but was about to pull the trigger on the Viking credit card. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. His favorite Spike Lee movie, Crooklyn. Least favorite, Cratton Island. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He puts out one bad episode and everyone is criticizing him left or right. Samuel L. Jackson can star in three triple X's, two diehards, 28 pieces of Marvel dreck. Yet he's still the guy who said Royale with cheese. The gist. I bought my F. Murray Abraham endorsed Diners Club card and I am sticking with it. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>